This episode contains discussions of topics that some may find triggering. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Jamie Heath. And uh, Liz Plank. She got who, her best orange shirt on today. Who do we have on the show Tell us, today. tell us. Uh, Jackson Katz. Jackson Katz! An incredible scholar, author, mentor of mine. I know you've read his books as mm. well. Um, a true, true uh, pioneer when it comes to the work that we're trying to do on this podcast. One of the... Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Mm. This guy's oh, been doing the work for 40 iconic. years. Yes. 40 years. Yeah. And what I love about Jackson Katz is he's like, he's a dude's dude. Mm-hmm. He's like, got a great name. That's man. number one. He's got yeah. a great name. I like, love he's, but, but he's like, forget about all the stuff that he's doing. If you just met him, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a man. He's a man. He's a dude's dude. And then here you are, and you hear this man's man talking about the things he's about to talk about. And it's just... It's just so cool and so powerful, mm-hmm. and he's such a badass, and I got a I got a man crush on him. The Boston accent has me. It just got it just got got me right away um, <laughs> the first time I heard him talk. So. And uh, after you um, listen to this, and I hope you listen to the end, Jackson's going to give you a few books um, mm-hmm. that you might want to check out, mm. and uh, and I hope you like this very special edition of Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to Man Enough. I think Liz is really excited today. I know I'm very excited. I'm excited, today. but I don't know if I've ever seen Liz this excited. Oh, this so, is true. And the she reason, has just the been... reason why is we have a we have a real life superhero on the show today. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only way to say it. Mm-hmm. We have a real life superhero, uh, somebody who has impacted me deeply. In yeah. fact, the Macho Paradox was. I have to admit, the first book on masculinity that I read as I started to try to understand, um, the first time that I ever heard that violence against women is a man's issue. And and I'm just so happy that this wonderful, beautiful human being has decided to come on the show. Jackson Katz, how you doing, man? I'm great. Thank you very much, uh, all of you, Jamie, Justin, and, and Liz. And it's it's so great to be with you. And I think what you're doing is is fantastic. The Man Enough podcast is a fantastic contribution, and I'm uh, proud and honored to be part of it. So thank oh. you. Liz, can we learn mm-hmm. a little bit about Jackson Katz? So Jackson Katz is uh, a dear friend of of, of all of us. Um, he's a, been a huge mentor to, to me personally, and, and now I'm excited to learn he's been a mentor to you as well. Uh, you're an educator, you're an author, you're a social theorist who is internationally renowned uh, for your pioneering scholarship and activism on, on issues of gender, race, and violence. Uh, you have authored numerous articles, which we encourage everyone to go read. You recently wrote a really great one for Ms. Magazine on why abortion rights is a men's issue. You wrote The Macho Paradox, as Justin uh, outlined, why some men hurt women and how all men can help. The best subtitle of all time. Uh, in, in your TED Talk, which, like, you're an OG, okay? Your TED Talk, I think, OG. I was trying to remember the first time I saw your TED Talk, and I think it was, like, on a TV. Like, it doesn't make sense, but it was, like, that long ago. You're the co-founder of the Multiracial Mixed Gender Mentors in Violence Prevention Program, one of the longest-running and most widely influential gender violence programs in North America and beyond. Uh, you're a major figure in this growing global movement of men that are working to promote gender equality and prevent violence. And, you know, we 
are currently in this moment it, th that is not new, but there are a lot of new things that are happening in regards to reproductive justice and the assault on uh, abortion rights and, and women's rights. And it's sort of an all hands on deck situation. And that's one of the reasons we really wanted you on this podcast to and, and we want to start with that topic because it's a, a very important topic, which we haven't really talked about enough i think on this podcast um so right in. yeah uh there's a six-week abortion ban in texas that makes no uh exceptions for rape or incest i know women who have been pregnant from rape and incest it happens it is mm. absolutely draconian that we would force these women to take um those pregnancies to term uh and i've said behind millions of successful men uh, there's an abortion that they had with their partner that they don't regret. Uh, you write a lot about how this is a men's issue. You shared um, in your Ms. Magazine article that between 40 and 90 percent of women say that their male partner was involved in their decision to terminate a pregnancy. So if men are involved in biologically, <laughs> logistically, um, why aren't we hearing from men on abortion rights? Well, we are diving right in, aren't we? Yes. Um, no softballs. This is like this. Like this is a cold plunge. So yeah. Boom. Here there we, we go. go. Mm. Here we go. <laughs> well, I mean, by the way, can I say I'm, I'll answer your question, but just as a as a framing uh, sort of point point, um, the issues of, of 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 masculinities and talking about men and men's responsibilities to each other to women. These are gigantically important issues in the human species. This is not just some esoteric subject matter. I mean, mm. it's fundamental to everything. And, 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 and abortion rights and reproductive rights, broadly understood, is an incredibly important uh, piece of sort of gender justice and gender equality. And, and I, you know, as I, I and others have been saying for a long time, if you believe in democracy, then you believe in gender equality by definition. And if you believe in gender equality, by definition, you believe that women should be able to control their reproductive lives in, in a, 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 across the spectrum, not just abortion rights, although that's a part of healthcare. It's 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 broader than that. It's you know it's birth control. It's being able to you know say no and and have that no be understood. It's it's the integrity of in, in heterosexual relations to, to be able to. Um, make decisions that are equal in your when you when and whether to have sex. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that relate to gender justice and gender equality that abortion rights is a piece of. And yet in the mainstream discourse that often gets pushed aside. Mm. And I think one of the reasons, Liz, to your specific question, one of the reasons why um, so few men talk about this subject, I think a lot of men don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of men are supportive of women in their lives, but they don't feel authorized to speak publicly about it. So for example, if they've been involved in an abortion decision with their wife, their girlfriend, or another woman, or another person, that's not necessarily their right to then talk about it unless they were specifically authorized to do so by the person hmm. who had uh, the abortion. And I, and I think that's part of it. I think men are sensitive to that privacy concern. Yeah. Uh, on the part of women. I also think that some men don't feel like they want to infringe on a, a movement, if you will, and a, 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 that is led by women in a multiracial, multiethnic sense. They feel like, you know, women need to be front and center and women's voices need to be lifted up. And so I, I think some men haven't figured out how you can both be upfront and vocal and at the same time not crowd out women's voices or somehow impede women's leadership. And so I think a lot of men in the face of these kinds of challenges retreat and the default is say nothing, just be privately supportive of women. And yet what ends up happening as a result of that is that the men who are not conflicted about this, which is to say the anti 
uh, choice movement and the backlash against feminism and against women's rights and women's advancement, they don't have any compunctions about saying any of this. And so the voices that you hear among men, generally speaking, with exceptions, um, are the are the anti-women voices or the anti-women's rights voices, which are very loud. Um, mm. And and let me I'll, can I also say I want to say this too. I know that there are people who don't share my political point of view that have with integrity a what they consider a moral position. And to a certain extent, I, I mean, I, I respect that. I don't agree with them. And I think that I think that, you know, I, I, I'll work to, to my last breath to, you know, to advance, you know, women's rights as I understand them. That includes, you know, full reproductive freedom. But I do think you can, with integrity, have a different position around this particular fraught issue. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to um, not 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 stand strongly with you know mm. with with women with other men and with others advancing this because again I believe passionately in democracy and 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 human rights and you have to understand abortion rights and reproductive rights within that larger framework. Mm. Um, it's not by the way it's not a coincidence that the movements for social justice and human rights and and the advancement of of um, of, uh, of justice all over the world almost always include a component of support for reproductive rights for uh, for women. It's not that's not a coincidence. Yeah. And it's also not a coincidence that fascist movements and movements that oppose democracy are almost always opposed mm -hmm. to women's rights and including rights to abortion. The two are inextricably linked. Is there is there a um, so all the ones that you had mentioned, because you asked this question of why oftentimes men are silent um, and you expressed you know, why you think that is, which sounds really um, accurate. What about the group of men, and I'll put myself in this, that are 100% for pro-choice, pro that women should control their bodies and reproductive organs and all of this, 100% without question. And also have a moral belief that um, pregnancy and, and um, is, I don't even know how to put it. This is how it's so delicate for me, right? So I, yeah. if my daughter were to get pregnant um, and she said, hey, dad, I want to get an abortion, what do you think? Um, I would 100% support her choice in whatever it is, but I still might counsel her to understand that I believe this this um, embryo is, become, is a soul and coming to, it, it will be a baby and all of these things. However, at the end of the day of that counsel, whatever your choice is, I will hold your hand and go right with it with with you right so i'm like this is a tough one mm -hmm. because if i say it incorrectly then um i'm all of a sudden getting backlash and i think there's a lot of men that feel that so then therefore we're silent because how do we have both feelings at the same time i i appreciate that jamie um i think that's well well said um well expressed i mean i would say that the political question is different than the personal moral or ethical choice that you would struggle with, that uh, that women, others, men, you know, struggle with around the rightness or wrongness of a certain course of action. The political question is: Does the state come in and tell women or others what they can and cannot do right. with this most intimate personal choice? So the political question is separate from the moral and ethical question, mm. and people can have. There's plenty of people, for example, who are pro-choice politically who would not have an abortion yeah. and, and, and who would not mm. counsel another to have an abortion, but yeah. they're, they're not willing to impose that on another person through the, the coercive power of the state. So, so the political question is really about the role of the political 
system yes. and the state, not about the moral yeah. and ethical dilemma that people find themselves in. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. I think this is really important, Jackson. I think and, so. And, yeah. and Jamie, thank you for bringing this up. I know that um, in the past, I was one of the men who stayed silent because I didn't understand. Because I have a personal belief, like Jamie, that at conception, there's a soul. And what I love about the conversation, what I've learned recently, and what you just said, Jackson, is that you can, you can believe that uh, an embryo is a soul. And you can also believe that it's nobody's fucking business what a woman does or doesn't do with her body. Both things can be true. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of people who fall into this gray area where they might have moral or spiritual beliefs and they don't know mm -hmm. if that if they're allowed to also have those political mm -hmm. beliefs and stand up for women in their bodies mm -hmm. and their reproductive rights. But I just heard something that I am going to change my mind on right now or at least moving forward from what was just said. I I do have those beliefs, moral compass for myself, but also 100% believe in pro-choice. And I think that because I conflate the two and makes me silent, I'm going to leave my moral belief to myself and my friends and family in an intimate group. But I think my voice only has to be pro-choice. Pro -choice. I don't need to say pro-choice and then couple it with, but there's this and this and this, because in some way I'm belittling, it sounds like, or can feel like I'm belittling pro-choice or my opinion on it, my well, stance. And and actually what you are talking about is extremely frequent in, and we see it in the data around people and their identification as pro-life or pro-choice. A lot of people will will, will think, um, well, half of the country's pro-life and half of the country's pro-choice. But when you ask people these specific questions, like, would you get an abortion? Like, no. Do you think other people should have a right to have an abortion? Yes. yes. <laughs> so you are pro-choice. Most, the majority of Americans are pro-choice. And so it's not a gray area. And and it's, and I'm, I, I think we need to talk about this more because just because I'm for gay marriage, it doesn't mean I'm going to get gay married. I might get gay married because I'm queer, but you can be pro-gay uh, marriage. That doesn't mean you're going to get that that well, you're gonna make that personal but, choice but it comes down to love too like like of course like, do do i want another human being to be allowed to make their own choices and be happy like i think it's i think, yes. I think it's also love yes but but abortion somehow and and this is the question maybe that jackson can answer why is abortion so different in that way why is gay marriage about love but abortion is about murder right abortion is a, is we, we sort of individualize Ooh, it as as another because uh, i've been obsessed with how how do we have the same kind of success with reproductive rights that we've had with other progressive uh causes because we've been really stuck yeah well i mean this is a really complicated it's it's a, important mm discussion the debate about abortion really is a, a debate about women's role in society right yeah. mm -hmm. women's right to control her own body and decision making men's right to control women patriarchal religions role in maintaining certain kinds of male authority over women and this is a piece of that because the early pro-choice you know advocates and activists um were almost all feminists who were trying to advance mm -hmm. women's right to control their body, control their reproduction, and, and to, as, as a way to gain full citizenship and full access to democratic freedoms, democratic rights, and, and they're part and parcel. And, I, and then we, we still have, this is still a fraught subject in our society. 
you know, even though some people think it's obvious that, you know, women should have the same rights as men, women should pay, be paid the same as men. It's not as simple as that. There is still deep sort of misogyny in our culture. It's deeply unequal in gender terms, regardless of the incredible progress women have made. But I do think the vast majority of people that I know who are pro-choice or who are part of the abortion rights movement are really thoughtful, ethical people who have thought through this stuff and come to the decision of being, you know, pro-choice politically. Uh, not because of you know frivolity or or or, mm -hmm. or di callous disregard for you know for for you know emerging life or the or the soul that's growing within the woman's body. It's not none of that. It's that's total BS. It's like everybody is deeply concerned about this morally and 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 is this in line with my values? And, and but then as, as I said earlier, what we all have arrived at is okay, knowing that we live in a heterogeneous society with different religious points of view, with different understandings of where the soul is, resides or when it is in soul, when, a, when a, an embryo is ensouled or whatever you want to, however you want to frame that, there's a wide variety of opinion about that. Um, and therefore, the state should not dictate one or another point of view based on a certain subset of the population's you know, ethical mm -hmm. or religious belief about that question. Yeah. Makes why do you think, sense. Jackson, uh, why did, why has this come down to, um, oh, you're, you're not pro-choice baby killer. Like, why are we, why are we here? I guess my question for you is like, is this really in your mind about the saving of babies' lives? Because that's the only thing that that I hear, really, like um, when I've tried to have similar conversations in private, um, it's it's just like, well, I'm not I'm not for killing babies, which which really weighs heavy on the other person's heart who's actually advocating for, at least in my case, like for a woman's right to control her body and right. choose right. as if right. and what hurts when I think about that is like even saying that like what like are you insinuating that this woman wants to kill mm -hmm. a baby like mm -hmm. and by my right. advocating for right. for a woman controlling the right to her body that i am a baby killer I, and i don't know how these things became conflated and is this even about protecting babies at this point right well i hear i i again i appreciate that these are these are you know complex moral questions i would say i heard a right wing polemicists say recently, I said, I think he's, he said what a lot of people have been saying and believing for a long time, but it, it clicked in when I heard him say it. He said, um, in response to the pro-choice argument that, you know, it's a woman's body, it's her choice. He said, it's not a woman's body, it's in her body. Yeah, yeah. In other words, she's the incubator of this baby that's somehow apart from her. And so if we're protecting that baby from her who would be her murderer in that in that um in that sort of framework contrast that with a slogan that came out of the abortion rights movement um you know i don't know 10 or 15 years ago maybe even longer trust women trust women the the the, the, the difference between that is is one that's in, the first one the, the former piece it's in her it's not uh, it's not her body it's in her body is an anti-feminist point of view it's 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 distrust. I've heard it called like a, a host body yeah, or host something. Body. Yeah, host I think body. that's even right. almost what he says. Just handmaid's right, tale. Right. So yeah. dis, distrust, distrust women essentially, 
because because they're going to make a bad choice about this extra somehow this this growing life that's external to her versus trust women which is it is her body it is growing within her body and if you trust her to make the choice give her the resources give her the decision give her a range of possible options and by the way we don't do that i mean again talk about we could talk about this for the whole you know for our whole discussion there's so many issues here i mean like like barney frank the former congress uh, person used to say you know you know conservatives care about life from the moment of conception to the moment of birth because if you if you're not going to provide you know you know child care and and natal care and health care for everybody across mm-hmm. the board for poor women for wealthy women and everybody in between if you're not going to provide support for children if you're not going to have an architect you're not going to reduce the military budget and, and and increase the social spending budgets to, to take care of human needs along you know along the whole life course then you're you're a hypocrite if you say you care. Your concern here is for, is is for you know compassionate care about about life, and again, how 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 interesting is it that the political sort of alignment is such that the pro-choice side is the ones who are always advocating for human rights, human needs, funding programs, education, healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, and and the side that's always against that is the one that's trying to prevent women from having. Um, right to control their reproductive freedom. That just shows you that it's not really about the fetus. It's about women. It's about a larger sort of political order that that is trying to be maintained. I think we're going to still be mired in these discussions for for yeah. the next several decades. Yeah. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. You are one of the architects of the bystander approach, which is, and I'm going to ask you to talk about it, but essentially is is asking on uh, others and particularly men to act in a situation of, you know, of, of, of violence against women, but also I think any situation. And that's sort of what we're talking about right now. Like how can men, um, instead of focusing on what women can do <laughs> to defend their own rights, how can communities come together and and uh, really center around safety of, of, of women, non-binary people, marginalized people? Um, can you talk about what the bystander approach means? And and I would love, you're such a great speaker. You, you give such great practical advice. And for our audience who is looking, and, and particularly men who are listening, who are like, how do I, how do I be a good bystander? What should they do? Just talk to me. And oh Jamie my God, Jackson. I was just going to say that. To forget about the men that are listening. So, if, no, give advice men, to Justin. Yeah. Uh, Jamie and Justin here. Uh, yeah, we're asking. We're you. here. We're asking you. We're asking, how can we <laughs> be better at this? Can you give me personal advice? <laughs> okay. Um, thank you, all of you. And just to give you a little bit of a context. Um, so, back in the, in the early 90s, um, I started a, a, a program called the you know, Mentors in Violence Prevention, MVP program, Liz referenced it earlier, that would train initially college male student athletes to speak out about sexual assault and domestic violence and sexual harassment. And my thinking was not that there was a problem in athletics of male athletes assaulting women, although there was such a problem and continues to be. I was thinking, where can we find more men and young men who have this courage and the strength to stand up and speak out and challenge and interrupt other men's enactment of sexist abuse towards women. My thinking was, if we can get guys who already have some status to do it, then it'll, it'll open up space beyond the insular athletic subculture. In other words, my thinking was athlete, athletes play a role. I knew this from my own experience because I was a really you know accomplished athlete as a young man. And I knew that my voice had weight in a certain sense, disproportionate 
weight because of my athletic uh, achievements. And again, that they were pretty humble in 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 you know if you you know truth be told, but but enough so that I had I knew this would work if we get guys who already have some status to speak out. And so I approached Richard Lapchick, the director at the time of the center, with this idea to create a program. We got funded by the United States Department of Education to create a model program. So we had this we had this pilot idea. The question is, what, what were we going to say to these young men on college football, basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, and lacrosse football teams? What are we going to say to them to invite them into the conversation rather than indict them as potential rapists and abusers? And I say invite rather than indict, which is a phrase from Esther Soler, who's the founder of Futures Without Violence, which is an important organization in San Francisco. Back in the 70s and 80s, when people did what they called sexual assault prevention on college campuses, most of it was organized around this binary understanding, women and men. Most of it was focused on women, and they called it prevention, but it was really risk reduction for women. They would teach women, don't put your drink down at a party because a guy might drop a rape drug in your drink. Look in the back seat of your car before you get in. Hold the keys as a potential weapon. You know, have a buddy system. All this stuff that women were taught to this day, yeah. urban, suburban, and rural. Mm -hmm. It's good advice, but it's not prevention. It's risk reduction, and there's an important distinction because prevention means going to the root cause of the problem, and Women aren't the root cause of violence against them. And when men were focused on, almost always back in the day, it was as perpetrators or potential, so the perps. So the spirit of the educational message to men and young men was, you better, you better know the law of consent in the state of California or whatever state you live in. Mm. You better know that if you're with somebody sexually and you're pushing forward and that person is not necessarily 100% on board and you keep pushing forward, you could be crossing the line into committing sexual assault. The problem with that, and that's true with uh, domestic violence too, if you're mm -hmm. getting worked up in a relational context and you're you know, feeling aggressive and you, you need to figure out how to de-escalate because if you don't, then you could cross the line into committing an act of domestic violence. The problem with that is that most men and young men don't see themselves as perpetrators. In fact, most men who have committed abuse towards women don't see themselves yeah. as perpetrators. On college campuses, the vast majority of men who commit rape don't see themselves as rapists in any way. And mm. so if you're going to go into a room full of men talking about them as perps or potential perps, you've lost a lot yeah. of them already because they right. just disidentify yeah. right. and some resent it, right? Some resent even the implication that just because they happen to be men, they, you know, they're somehow implicated in the crimes or the abuses of other men. Anyways, the point is I'm trying to figure out how do you get beyond this? Because we have, we're at a stalemate and I'm thinking, okay, I had a professor in graduate school Ron Slaby is his name, who along with his colleagues was looking at an approach to middle school bullying prevention that moved beyond the perpetrator victim binary. In other words, instead of focusing on the kid doing the bullying and the kid experiencing it, they focused on all the kids around the kid doing mm. it and all the kids around the kid experiencing mm -hmm. it. The goal was to get the kids around the kid doing it to make it clear to that kid that what he or she was doing was unacceptable, not because they were gonna get in trouble with the authority figure, like the teacher or the, the principal who's gonna come in as the external agent of authority and remove the offending party, but because the peer culture was gonna police itself. Kids were gonna make it clear to that kid, you can't treat kids like this, this is not cool. And in fact, we're not impressed at all by how you're behaving, you gotta knock it off. And then you get to get kids around the kid experiencing the bullying to make it clear to that kid, what's happening to you is wrong, we don't support it, I don't support it, what can I do to help and support you? The beauty of that approach is that everybody in a given peer culture has a role to play. It's not just isolated to the perpetrator and the victim. They call that the bystander approach. And what we did is we imported that bystander approach into the sexual assault, sexual harassment, and domestic violence field. What it did is it gave us a beautiful response to men and young men who would say, this isn't my issue. I don't rape women. I don't abuse my girlfriend. Why are you talking to me? Mm -hmm. it's, you know, The guys who are doing it, they need some support or they need some accountability. Not me. I'm a good guy. And 
it gave us a way to say, you know what, that's that's okay, but it's not really okay. It's not enough. This, by the way, it's like saying with, with race, you, to use the analogy with yes. race, it's like a white person saying, I don't burn crosses mm -hmm. on people's lawns. I don't paint swastikas on somebody's mirror on a college dorm. Uh, you know, I don't make racist comments. Racism is not my problem. It's like a really simple-minded understanding of racism and white people's responsibility to work against it. And I think the same direct analogy works with uh, sexism or heterosexism. So with men, it's like guys will say, because I don't commit these specific acts, it's not my issue. We have to push back against that and say, it is your responsibility. And one of your responsibilities is to make it clear to the men around you or the young men around you. And not everybody has powerful, you know, you know, charisma. I'm, I'm not naive about this. We're not naive about this. But make it clear to the men around you or the young men around you that you're not okay with other men treating women disrespectfully and not just raping them or abusing them physically, but even the kind of comments, you know, the the, the, the casual sexism or misogyny, the, the disrespectful comments that sometimes men will make within male culture with no women present. Again, very similar to if you're a white person and you're hanging out with a group of white people and one or two of those white people start talking, you know, racist commentary about people of color, if you don't interrupt that and make it clear that that's not cool with you, as a white person, your silence is a form of consent and complicity mm -hmm. in their racism. And don't we know that racism is much deeper than just individual acts? It's also systemic, institutional, but, it, but some of the beliefs that underlie those institutional structures get nurtured and sustained in places like groups of guys, you know, groups of guys hanging, groups of white people hanging out, or in the case of sexism, groups of guys hanging out, playing poker, talking about stuff, you know, going fishing, talking to, talking to each other, where if you don't make it clear that that's not, and you're one of the guys, that, that that's not acceptable to you, then in a sense, you are part of the problem. Yep. And I think what we're offering men in the bystander approach, and again, I'm just talking about men right now, um, but, you know, bystanders can be, you know, uh, women, it can be uh, people who are non-binary. In other words, a bystander is really anybody who's not a perpetrator or a victim in a given context or a given peer culture or community, because you can broaden it out. It doesn't just have to be in a specific moment. It can be in a community. A bystander is really another word for friend, teammate, classmate, colleague, coworker, family member, community member. And, you know, what can we do, those of us who are not in, directly involved in situations, to support victims and survivors and, and to challenge and interrupt abusive behavior? But, but those of us who have influence beyond just being in a, a member of a peer culture, we have even more responsibility. Principals of high schools, you know, coaches, uh, athletic directors, you know, community leaders, labor union leaders, business leaders, political leaders. In other words, in this, space, in this case, men who have influence if they're not using it affirmatively and proactively, in other words, they're not speaking out, they're not partnering with women, they're not making public statements about this, they're not mentoring young men, they're not making it clear that this has got to be part of the, the toolkit that boys need to be provided with, both in families, but also in schools and everywhere else, then in the sense those men are being passive bystanders in the face of abusive behavior. We know, I mean, we've known for decades how big a problem sexual violence and domestic and relationship abuse is in high schools, in middle schools, how many kids, I mean, by the age of 18, I mean, something like half of women who are going to be raped are raped by the age of 18. I'm sad to say. I mean, that's yeah. astounding on one level. What that means is that a ton of kids in high schools, girls and boys and non-binary people, are already have already been victimized by sexual abuse, by sexual violence, by domestic and relationship abuse. And yet you're a principal of a high school, but you're not going to talk about any of this. Or you're a coach, you're a teacher. 
One last thing. I understand that some of this stuff, as we were saying earlier, <clears> some of this stuff is really intensely political because if you start trying to talk about some of this stuff, there's resistance. It's not just it's just it's not just a cakewalk. I mean, part of the reason why it's such a challenge is that there's all these parts of our culture that resist accountability, that resist having these honest conversations, which is why, I, again, I'll, I'll say it again, what, what Justin, what you're doing in your book, uh, Man Enough, you and Jamie and Liz are doing in this podcast, talking honestly, you know, as men in this case of, of those of us who are men, talking honestly, and Liz's book is, a, um, by the way, a fantastic contribution. I mean, for the love of men, a fantastic contribution that bridges sort of feminist concern and compassion for women across the you know racial and ethnic and, and sexual orientation spectrum, and concern and compassion for men, mm. which are which some people see as antithetical, which is ludicrous. And 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 Liz is on the cutting edge in the sense that she's articulating that from a feminist standpoint. Yes, that actually is. concern and compassion for men, right? Concern and compassion for men is a feminist act. And that, and it's a false dichotomy to say that either you're concerned with men mm. or you can or you're yeah. a feminist, yes. which is total BS, total bell, BS. Bell hooks, mm. yeah, mm. bell hooks. And women of color have been at the forefront. Bell hooks being central among them yeah. have been at the forefront of saying that we can't just throw men out the door or just you know men are irredeemable. That's mm. that's that's destructive to they say for example the whole African American community. But in more in a more general sense. I think it's true across the board. It's true for white guys too. I think, yeah. and, but I think I think we're at a place in our society where there there's a lot of loud voices. There have been for a number of years, which are saying feminists hate men, and if you care about men, you're going to reject feminism. It's total BS. It's like this, it's the, the smartest way to think about it's it is that some of the best things that have happened to men over the past couple generations are because of feminist women's leadership mm -hmm. and some of the can, mm. yeah. Can you talk more about oh, that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the history of the, the men's movement. By the way, uh, if you're driving, I hope you uh, will listen to this later and take notes. Yes, because we have. We're, we're taking notes here. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot, lot to unpack and what, a lot. I appreciate sharing. that you're indulging me. I'm going off on these riffs. No, well, that's no. why you're here. Yes, well, please continue. Yeah, that's why you're here. <laughs> there's a thing called the, uh, the Feminist Women's Health Movement, which you know started in the early 1970s. One of the iconic books that was produced is called Our Bodies, Ourselves in the early 1970s by in, in my home city of Boston, which is called the Boston Women's Health Book Collective. And they produced this book called Our Bodies, Ourselves. And it was a way to, to, to link um, gender norms and sexism to health outcomes in women's lives and you know various ways in which women's health was affected by their subordinate status in the in, in sociological terms or in political terms that plays out on women's bodies and women's health the women's health movement has been an incredibly important you know force over the past you know half century well there's a men's health movement it's nowhere near as big but it, it has its roots in the women's health movement. In fact, some of the major figures in the men's health movement, and when I say men's health, I'm talking about emotional, psychological, physical, sexual, relational health, explicitly credit feminist women's leadership for creating the intellectual architecture, the, the paradigm, the way to think about gender and its relation to health. And like my example for my, my friend and colleague, Terry Real, mm. who wrote a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression. It was published in 1997. It's like the first major book that was published about depression in men, okay? And Terry Real, by the way, his real name is Terry Real. But if you look <laughs> at the cover of the book, the cover of the book says Terrence Real. Terrence Real doesn't exist as a real person, but the publishers wanted to make sure that people knew a man had written the book. And then the, the name Terry is a uh, gender... Um, ambivalent mm -hmm. and they wanted to make sure that men knew that a man had written it anyways wow 
Terry Reels explicitly says that feminist ideas is what gave him the sort of the understanding of all of this. And now you have this new generation of men that includes you guys to a certain extent and younger, even younger, although you guys are pretty young from my point of view. Um, <laughs> Not really. That, that, that talks openly about depression, that talks openly about men's mental and emotional challenges. I mean, it's still it's, it's still uphill in a, in a culture that, you know, touts rugged individualism as the ideal of masculinity. If you've got a problem, just suck it up. Meanwhile, half the half the, the American troops coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan have brain trauma, have emotional problems. The suicide rates are enormous among our warrior class, the ones who are supposed to be the toughest. They're all human beings who are emotionally vulnerable. Anyways, you'll hear you'll hear men say, "Well, what about men? What about the problems of men?" As if yeah, feminists exactly. are somehow antagonists yes. to that or are somehow antithetical to that when in fact they created it. How about sexual abuse, okay? And I appreciate anybody, present company included, that is honest about, it's really difficult for men especially, but not exclusively, to talk about um, sexual abuse. So many men are sexually, uh, so many adult men have been sexually abused as boys. So many boys are sadly even today being sexually abused, most of the time by men and other boy, boys and men, sometimes by women and other people, uh, non-binary. But who were the first people to talk about men as the victims of sexual abuse? It was feminist women in the 1970s who were talking about boys and men as the victims of sexual abuse <laughs> and, and creating the, the sort of the, 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 the architecture of support for victims and survivors to come forward, to be acknowledged as having experienced this trauma, that the, the, the shame shouldn't be among the person experiencing it. it. It should be, if there's anybody has shame, it should be the person who committed mm -hmm. the abuse, not the person experiencing it. All of this architecture of support and cultural space that that is now there, mm. it's not perfect, but is now there for men to come forward and be supported, was created by women, and particularly feminist women. But when's the last time you heard feminist women cre credited with creating space for men's emotional support mm. around sexual abuse, you know, victimization? Y you don't hear it very often. Some of it's just flat-out ignorance. I mean, and some of it's uh, and some of it's malicious, sort of aggressive anti-feminist, you know, uh, ideology where, where, where these, some of these men who are part of movements that are seeking to block feminist advances don't want to acknowledge any of this because it, it, it steps on their narrative. And their narrative is feminists hate men. We love men. We support men and especially white men. And, yeah. um, you know, and all, there it, we are. and all it takes <laughs> is that, you know, less than 1% of feminists who, you know, maybe have their own opinions and maybe have had trauma that do maybe are very are very public for all of the men to say, see, all feminists hate us. It's the same thing we do with everything. It's the one percent, and then we use that to, you know, promote right. whatever the hell narrative it is. And it's it's right. It's so sad. Mm. And and Justin, it's intellectually illegitimate <laughs> because to, to to say that I mean I've been working on these issues for I don't know forty plus years, mm. and I've never met one woman. That I would say is anti-male in the in the feminist movement. Now they might exist, and I'm certainly a lot of women who are angry about sexism. But that's like saying, mm -hmm. as a white person, have I met people of color who are angry mm -hmm. about racism, who are really who don't want to deal with you know white people at all because they're so they've been so tortured by racism. They they just don't have any time for white. Yeah, I have mm -hmm. met those people. Just like I've met some women who are you know they don't want anything to do with men anymore. Mm -hmm. But I, but, but as a person who has some social advantage, we have to be able to, to live with that and just say, okay, that's one of the, that's one of the results of, of, of the systems of inequality that we have. There's mm -hmm. some 
tiny member of the other group, the subordinated group, that is so angry and so, like, don't want to deal with us. But but to say that that's a stand-in for everybody is so ridiculous. It's just mm. not. It's not credible, and it's a way to not deal with the, the real issues. You're listening to the Mad Enough podcast. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Mad Enough podcast. You had mentioned that you've been doing this work for forty years, and I'm I'm thinking you look about great by the way, Chad. <laughs> yes, and you made you, you made reference that we look young from your point of view. I, I I'm sure we're not that far age difference. What I'm wondering is. You've been doing this work for so long. There are so many young boys, as you keep referring to, that are in school, 13, 14 year olds, then we got high school or 17 year olds and such, and then young men in college, um, who, as we're doing this podcast, we want to reach men's hearts. And I love also, by the way, how you talked about this idea that a lot of men don't see themselves as the very thing that we also are labeling them as, right? Um, in fact, they are doing this damage, but they don't see it, so we lose them at the gate because they don't then identify. I love that point. My my question to you is, and maybe this is a, a personally why you care so much about this. Why have you dedicated 40 years of your life to this? If I'm 18 or 25 and I say, I'm on this brink, you know, I, I kind of like my ears listening to you a little bit. I'm not really that interested, but I'm kind of, why should I care about this? other than just wanting to be well-versed in it and like, you know, uh, why should I really care? Why do you care? Tell me why you care so much so that maybe I can then learn from your care. Yeah, that's a great question and prompt. Thank you, Jamie. Um, well, I mean, I honestly, from the time I was a young guy, like 19, you know, I was a sophomore in college. I mean, actually my first year, of college when I was reading and learning and, you know, taking courses. I mean, I wanted, I was exploring, by the way, for my own personal growth. Like when I started taking courses, my first semester of college, um, I, I, I had been a high school, you know, three sport varsity athlete and an all-star, you know, football player. And, and I was in, in a small town suburban jockocracy. So I've heard some of your podcast discussions about, and I've read, you know, Justin's book. I was, I was, I was on the other side. Like I wasn't, I wasn't one of the kids who was, you know, bullied by the jock culture, if you will, as much as I was in the center of you it. You were tying me um, to the goalpost. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> in fairness, I, I, I wasn't. Okay, but, good. Okay, good. But, but in metaphor, metaphorically, I love that. I had I had stuff when I was even younger. Like I had I was playing out some some petty stuff when I was even younger, like at you know ten, twelve. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. But it was family dysfunction you know, spilling over, yeah. if you will. Mm -hmm. But, 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 but anyways, in high school, I was, I was in the center of that sort of, but I didn't feel comfortable on one level. On one level, I did, I got a lot of, you know, the positives for being successful in that realm. But I was also not at all, it was not at all in line with who I wanted to be or who I saw myself as. So when I went to college, I, um, I took courses with gender in the topic description. Not because I was going in to you know help 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 women like I had some feminist you know quest to be a you know a heroic, but it was rather, how can I get better in touch with this disjuncture between my private reality, a sensitive you know guy, young man, boy, you, you know damaged in many ways, and the public self of the football player, the kind of you know charismatic mm. guy, 
how do I get more in touch with that? So I took these courses and, and, and they included literature, uh, feminist literature course, which I, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I did know that it was gender. And I, but I wasn't like thinking of, you know, feminism, this is what my, you know, it's going to be my salvation. And I started reading women's literature and discussing it. And I was, it was so interesting to me. It was giving me all this insight, both into women's lives and narratives, but then how, you know, feminist writers and novelists and others were thinking about men. And, 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 and I did have some critiques, by the way, of some of the ways that men were caricatured, because I didn't feel like I, the complexity of my life mm. was being represented in some of that literature. But I did see that there was a whole way of thinking about gender in a complicated way. And by the way, I was also fortunate at the University of Massachusetts to have professors who were also intersectional before even the term intersectional. Mm. In other words, talking about race and gender and sexual orientation and and decolonization because one of the one of the great movements of the 20th century is decoloniz the decolonization movement of global south countries and community and, and societies freeing themselves often in brutal wars uh, you know revolutions if you will shack removing the shackles of european you know domination these are titanic things that were happening in the 20th century and by the way can i also say my father was a, a medic in world war ii um, I'm old enough so that my father's generation was, you know, World War II. I mean, my, my, and my father died at age 37 of a heart attack mm. um, when my mother was pregnant mm. with me. Mm. So I never even met my father. But the, the, the point is, World War II was not that far. I mean, World War II was the biggest cataclysm of violence in the history of the human species. And I was born 15 years at the, after the... Uh, you know, the German surrender. Um, and, you know, one of the great days in human history. Anyways, the point is, it's not that, that far away. We're not that far away generationally from this incredible, including the cataclysm of violence in the mid 20th century, the decolonizing movements, and then the civil rights movements and the women's movements and the anti the Vietnam War, the anti-war movements. This is all roiling in my, in my psyche in a certain sense. And as a young man, I was like, intellectually, I was very acquisitive and very I want to learn everything. Give me, you know, read. I mean, I, I surround myself with books about race and gender and racism and sexism and heterosexism, all of it at the same time. And I'm and I'm all thinking, I'm a man. I'm a white guy. I'm heterosexual. I happen to occupy certain positions of social advantage. And I'm also in a position as a result to do something about all these giant problems that we have. And it was clear to me. And I was, you know, I was filled with change the world energy. Like I was one of these young men in a hurry, like I'm going to change the world. And to me, I thought I saw gender inequality as one of the central injustices in the human species. And it was marbled into every other system mm -hmm. of inequality, including racism, you know, and, and heterosexism. Mm. Um, and so I just thought, I just got to start speaking out. And so when I started speaking out as a young guy writing, I used to write for the school newspaper and a, a weekly column. And I started student organizations. I started speaking out. And then what happens is when you're a man who speaks out on this subject matter, you know, who comes to you and starts sharing their, their women start Generally speaking, I'm not, you know, not all women, but women will start feeling a little more safe to say and talk to you and say to you what's really happening in their lives. And I remember hearing from women around me about how they had to live in the daily reality of fear of men's violence and sexism and everything. I'm mean, just like, this is so messed up. And I knew as a man that I was in a position to do something about it. And then I looked around and I was like, where are the men speaking out? There's not that many. It's very few, in fact. And I was like, this is so obvious, a deficit. And I'm, I was, a, again, a, a pretty confident young man, even though I had my own doubts, and I still do. But I was 
confident enough that I, that this was right. Like I, men should speak out. And so I started doing it and I, and my feeling was, and this is one of the privileges of being a successful athlete, especially in this case, football is like, I, I wasn't worried what other men were going to say. And I, I wasn't like, what are you going to say to me? Mm. I'm, I'm soft. I'm, I'm a wuss. I mean, it's like, to me, that was so ridiculous mm. on its face that it, it was just like, I, I'm not, that's not going to stop me. But I have to say, I'm not, Typically, I'm not normal in that regard. I mean, there's an awful lot of men and young men who see injustice around them. They see sexism. They see ways that men act both indiv individually, but also collectively. And they don't like it, but they don't say anything. Mm. And, and this gets back to the whole bystander thing earlier. It's like, why don't they say something? One of the reasons they don't say something is because they know that there's a cost to pay in male culture if you take a stand on these matters, because other men will police you back into conformist silence. They'll, they'll call you soft or wuss or not one of the guys, or you're not playing for the home team, or there's something wrong with you. You're not man enough. Mm. And therefore, say a lot again, of guys baby. get... <laughs> yeah, you're not man enough. And so a lot of guys will, as a result, they'll retreat and they'll be silent and they won't say anything. And I'm, I'm convinced, this is why it's a leadership issue for me. It's, a, it's mm. Leaders are people who take a stand even when it might be unpopular. And a bystander who speaks up, a friend who's, like I always say, a 15-year-old boy whose friend just tells a rape joke, right? The 15-year-old boy, maybe his mother's a rape survivor. And by the way, a lot of 15-year-old boys have mothers yeah. who are rape survivors and they don't even know it because the mother hasn't shared it with them. Anyhow, the 15-year-old boy hears his friend tell a rape joke. The 15-year-old boy, if he turns to his friend and says, can you t joke about something else? I don't think that's funny. I don't think we should be joking about this, you know. That 15-year-old boy has just executed a leadership protocol. He might not see himself as a leader. He might ha not have any credentials to suggest that he's a quote-unquote leader, but that's a leadership act. Mm. Because what he did is he saw there was some kind of harm, thought about his responsibilities to women, you know, to his friend, to himself, to his own moral integrity. And then he thought about what his options might be, and he does it. He executes it. That's what a leader does, isn't it? The friend who says to his friend who's disrespected his girlfriend at a party, who takes him aside maybe later and says, dude, you're my friend, but I, the way you were talking to your girlfriend, I was really uncomfortable you know, with that, man. That's a leadership act yeah. by that friend. It's also a friendship act by that friend because, because if you care about that guy, you're gonna say something because you know that what he's doing is harmful, not just to her, but to him, that he's diminishing his own relational success and he's potentially committing crimes mm. and hurting other people. Right? He's your friend. Don't you have a responsibility? It's the most manly mm. thing we could do. <laughs> That's the irony. Is yeah. the, the right. cognitive dissonance of being a boy and a man is that the most unmanly thing we can do, we're told is the most manly. And the most manly thing we can do, standing up for women, right? Taking these leadership roles, takes the most bravery and we're pleased for that. And told that it's unmanly. That's right. And That's it makes exactly no right. sense, right? This idea of like policing to keep us in that box makes absolutely no sense when you actually think about it. Because the thing we're most afraid of, Jackson, is going against our own gender. So that would mean it's right. the bravest thing that we can do. That's right. Know. And Justin, can I, I, you're right. You're right on point. But also, I would say there's even more. There's even more to. Yeah, take it home. Rich, take it home, so Jackson. That, yeah, rich content. The, the, I often say, like, like, if you're a guy, 
being one of the guys takes nothing special. Mm. Just going along with your boys <laughs> takes zero special. What takes something special is if your guys, your, your boys are doing something that's wrong, is turning to them and saying, dudes, you know, you're my friends, you're my buddies, but that's not cool because that, that takes so much more strength. Yet the person who does it gets called soft or he's not man enough. It's literally the exact opposite of the truth. Yeah. People will say, well, don't you want men to be strong? Don't you don't don't boys and young men need to be strong? And you're saying you're you know, and if you hear on, you know, various, you know, right wing sort of channels, make men men again, the, mm -hmm. the wussification of America, where wussifying men, where wimpingifying men, we're making men soft. No, we're not making men soft. In fact, we're making men stronger. And by the way, I want to be strong. I, I, I feel like I'm a strong man or I aspire to be strong. Strength is a good thing. The question is not whether we want men or young men to be strong. The question is how do you define strength? Mm -hmm. And if, you're, if your only definition of strength is your ability to impose your will physically on another person through force or the threat of force, that's a really simple-minded understanding of strength. So we have to expand our definition of strength. It's moral courage, it's social courage, it's being able to say, even when your voice is quivering to your friend, dude, I'm concerned about you because the way you've been acting towards your, you know, girlfriend is really not cool. And I, I'm really, uh, you can be, your voice can be shaking. But that takes strength to do that. Yeah. I just, I mean, I work with the military. I've been working with the military for 24 years now, all branches. And my program was the first program, domestic and sexual violence prevention program system-wide in the United States military. And in particular, we were in the Marine Corps. This is starting in 1997. Damn. And I remember I used to use this all the time, this like sort of little little analogy or little story. I would say, you know, think about this Marine who's like hard, a man, a, a man who's a Marine, who's a hard charging kind of tough, taking physical risks on the battlefield in a way that vast majority of us would never even consider doing, right? And I admire that physical courage is a form of courage. That same Marine is now back stateside sitting at a bar and his friend tells a sexist joke or makes a sexist or derogatory misogynist comment towards women. And this guy doesn't want to say anything to his friend because he doesn't want his friend to think he's soft. The same guy who's like jumping into mortar fire <laughs> is worried that his friend's going to think he's soft because he's because he said a sexist <laughs> comment is not acceptable. So it's like, crazy. Let's expand our definition of strength beyond yes. the, the most Cro-Magnon yes. battlefield encounter. Mm. And if we do that, by the way, what we're doing is we're presenting men and young men with aspirational sort of goals to be to be strong means to support women, means to be a man who challenges sexism, a white person who challenges racism. It's not, that's not weakness, it's actually strength. And also one last thing, Justin, you had said about like, it's challenging your gender or, or something like being strong for women it's both, this is why Liz's book is so important. It's not one or the other. It's not like just for women. I don't mm. see, like my work isn't just for women, it's for men. It's for everybody. It's like men have so much to gain by all of this. Yeah. I mean, feminism has pointed us in a direction over the past generation, right? Uh, that is so life enhancing for men and so relationally connected from men's experience. Like it's, it's, it's I don't see it as just helping women. Yeah, I, no, I, from it's the not. beginning. Mm. It's been helping men, right? It can be selfish <laughs> in some ways because yeah, shit. I I don't want to suffer the way that I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. And your you life know? is so isn't your life so much better now that you've been doing this work? Oh, it's night. It's night and day. Night and yeah. day. I'm not not even the same. Mm -hmm. Not even the same person. Mm -hmm. I right. wish. God, I wish Jackson Cats would have been in my <laughs> life when I was 16 years old. Same. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank, but, but can I one one last piece of this uh, yeah. related point? 
violence is a huge force in the lives of men. Mm -hmm. Now, men's violence against women is itself a huge problem in the world, and it continues to be so. But men's violence against other men is an enormous problem. And, and in fact, in all the major categories of violence, outside of domestic and sexual violence, men are the, and young men are the primary victims as well as the primary perpetrators. So murder, attempted murder, assault, aggravated assault, gay bashing, bullying, men and young men are the primary victims of all these exactly. crimes as well as the primary perpetrators. And so if we're going to figure out how we can reduce or how we're going to reduce violence, but certainly how we're going to, you know, define manhood, you say undefined, but, you know, redefine, undefined, sort of reconstruct understandings of what it means to be a man such that violence and, and strength aren't necessarily equated. If we can do that, men will be much less victims of other men's violence. Boys will be much less the victims of adult men's sexual predation as well as other forms of abuse. And everybody will be healthier. Mm -hmm. And and I think I think this is one of the, one of my problems with the men's rights, so-called men's rights movement, is they see feminists as their antagonists. Like somehow feminists are against men or men's rights. And I just don't think that's, I think that's a simple-minded way of thinking. I think it's wrong. Can you just give us two minutes if, on if that? About... Can you just, 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 just go into that, if you don't mind, for just, for just a, a minute, minute or two. Yeah. Because that there is, there is this whole sub-movement sub of, you know, the alpha, red pill, men's mm -hmm. rights movements that mm -hmm. think that feminism is the, the reason enemy. for all their problems. Yeah. Women um, are the, the w women is the reason they're in pain. So I'm just curious, right. Jackson, if you don't mind, if you don't mind just giving us some thoughts on that. There's been different, there's been, there's been different ways that men have responded to, 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 to the increase in feminist activism. But this movement, you know, it's real and it's online. And, and, um, and it, you know, I, I think it creates this unnecessary tension between men and women. And by the way, it's also men who, in, in particular white men, who are feeling displaced by feminism, by the LGBTQ revolution, who, 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 have, who feel like they, they deserve to be on center stage, but are being pushed off center stage. And I mean, I've always read, for example, Make America Great Again as put white men back on center stage again. And I think what these men are trying to do, what these movements are trying to do is put the genie back in the bottle. It's not gonna succeed because, because demography pushes forward the culture and, our, and wor the world is a racially and ethnically diverse place. Women aren't going back into the second class status. That's not happening. How do you adapt? How do you evolve? To me, that's the question, mm. rather than put your finger in the dike or shovel sand against the tide. So, I mean, evolution, for example, the success, the most successful organisms are the ones who know how to adapt mm. to the changing local environments. That's the ones who succeed, not the ones who try to hold back the tides of history, but the ones who adapt and, and mm -hmm. come up with new ways of being. And I think that generationally, some of that's happening with men. I mean, again, again it's, it's imperfect. And I think we have to we have to map individual and personal experience to social policy because it's the other thing politically. If we don't if we talk about this all as a personal issue, like we're like Jamie or or Justin or me trying to figure out how to be a better person or better partner or or you know, I mean, which is all important, and people want to be happy and people want to be you know fulfilled in their lives. I, I absolutely, but if we don't marry that personal aspiration to social policy and you know funding childcare and mm -hmm. prioritizing the lives of you know mothers and fathers and so that individuals don't have to figure out yes. how to work alone against these giant systems that 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 make life really difficult then we're then we're we're, we're doomed you know we're doomed but i don't think we have to be but i just i do think we have to get beyond some of these 
divisions like men against women or feminists against you know men's rights i think we have to move beyond those divi those artificial divisions and again i think advancing men's lives and men's health means working collaboratively with uh, feminist women not antagonistically toward mm. them Yes, and so you <laughs> did a great documentary called The Man Card, um, which it, your bio is so long, we couldn't cite every amazing, <laughs> incredible work uh, that you've contributed, um, but everyone should go check it out. It's about all the, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about gender when it comes to our political system, but you really look at it through the prism of masculinity and men, yeah. and there's mm. so much to talk about with that, um, in, and not just in, in the last few years, but you, you actually look at it in the last 30, 40 years. Um, so it's a very good documentary. Will, will you come back out. and we come back and uh, spend some more time with us there's so much yes. so much I mean, more i know that oh, we want to talk oh, about I'd, and I'd be, we need you I'd back be more than happy to thank you so much i mean i you know i'd be happy to continue the dialogue i mean again i think what what you're doing in your podcast is modeling that men can actually and 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 Liz, I mean, so I don't mean just say you know because Liz's Liz's contribution is critical. I mean, can I say there's critical. a thing called standpoint theory? And have you have you heard of standpoint theory? No. Standpoint theory suggests that the perspective that somebody has based on their social position makes a huge difference in terms of what they see, the optics that they, the lens that they look through. Mm. So, for example, a woman in a patriarchal society is going to see things mm -hmm. and certainly is going to see things about men that men aren't going to because like the saying goes the fish are the last to see the water so that part of the part of privilege is that you don't see your own privilege and so a person who doesn't have that same standpoint isn't going to see the same thing so for example white people if you're living in a very white community um and a person of color then enters that community and then you interview say that person of color you know later in the day they're going to have some insights in that community that a lot of the people in the community yeah. would never have even thought about. Exactly. And it never even occurred to them because their standpoint is different. Absolutely. So Liz's insights, she's going to see things, implications of some of the things that you guys are saying and talking about, or we guys, um, that we wouldn't even have seen, exactly. you know? But that's not because we're bad people. It's just how it works. And by the way, I do think also, and this is why I think is brilliant about Justin's book, um, is that when men have read women's writing and you know feminists had discussions with feminist women and has all had a, they can see things we can see things from the inside mm. that they couldn't yeah. see because they don't live in our bodies yeah. and, and 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 i know jamie and justin and i have been in parts of male culture that liz has never been in, mm -hmm. in. you've certainly never been inside a male body but i mean even yeah. in parts of the culture in other words friendships that you have with other men mm -hmm. that you guys talk about which, by the way, I'm you're way ahead of me. Okay, you're way more honest. Your your ability to talk honestly and emotionally vulnerable is beyond my ability to do that, and I appreciate that. Want to trade? You're you know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be interesting. Well, yeah, maybe that both would be hard. interesting. But I I'm just saying, I think yeah, both are hard. But I'm just saying, I think what you're doing is for other for men, you're modeling that you can actually talk about stuff that's that might be scary and might be a little awkward. And a lot of guys would be, are, you know, you know, a little bit, but they listen and they hear you saying it and it gives them mm -hmm. at least 
I'm not saying it's going to make them go out the next day and start talking about That's their, right. you know, the yeah. challenges of feeling, you know, you know, vulnerable or, or their, you know, their body image anxiety. That's an important one, Justin, you've talked about that and written about that. I mean, body image anxiety, tons of men feel like they don't measure up, literally measure up their penis isn't long enough They're They're not tall enough. They're not physically powerful enough. They see other men who are kind of like buff and they think, oh, I could never look like that. And, and it's, I, I don't want to equate it directly with women because physical appearance for women is much more punished if you yeah. if they're not successful at, exactly. at, at establishing themselves in the dominant sort of cultural mm. un understanding of femininity. But a lot of men do feel inadequate and a lot of men do feel that they don't measure up. And hearing men talk honestly about that, including men who sometimes from the outside look like they got it all going on. In other words, saying, you know what, I might look like I've got great confidence, but I get private anxiety. I get private, you know, depression. I get private uh, feelings of self-doubt all the time. This is really important. Mm. And it's not an act of, of weakness, as I was saying earlier, to acknowledge vulnerability. In fact, anybody who's been minimally checked in emotionally or been in therapy minimally, I mean, it, this, this is not some great revelation, knows that somebody who denies their vulnerability, who just got, got a complete, like, I've got it all, I've got it, oh, I've got it under control, is somebody who's literally not got it under control, in fact, is so threatened mm -hmm. by introspection that they can't even acknowledge that they might be wrong sometimes, that they might be, uh, you know, look at Donald Trump. It's like exhibit A. <laughs> and 75 million, 75 million people voted for him even after four years of his presidency. Mm. Others are still invested in this old caricature, what I consider a discredited caricature of certain, you know, manliness. And, and, by creating the space for these kinds of discussions, um, you're, you know, mm. you're, you're on the cutting edge. So Step, thank you. Oh, Jackson. Uh, we thank you. Um, let's do a part two. Thank you so much for being here and for coming on. And if you, uh, as a listener ha have been as blown away as all of us have, hopefully you've taken notes, not while driving. Um, and you want to learn more about Jackson and his incredible groundbreaking work, you go to jacksoncats.com. Uh, cats with a Z at the end, jacksoncats.com. Uh, he's got, I'm sure he's got your documentary on there. You got your books, articles, mm -hmm. all the things that, um, that you do so brilliantly. And um, we just so appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you so much, Jackson. It's what we needed, indeed. I appreciate your uh, uh, everything that you are contributing to society and humanity. Mm. You are go going to leave or are leaving an amazing mark on the earth, but you will, in your passing in many, many years to come, leave a huge, incredible legacy. Um, and I think that we'll look back at your work and we'll know that humanity progressed directly because of what mm. you've committed your life to. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. And as we leave, for our listeners who are who love to read, besides, of course, Liz Plank's incredible book, um, can you give our listeners three of your favorite books that are a great jumping off point? And feel free to include one or both of yours in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Justin. I, I would say... Um... If you want to learn about violence, read the book called Violence by James Gilligan. He's a, uh, a former psychiatrist who worked with really deeply disturbed men for over 20 years and wrote some incredible books, including this book called Violence, that explains that shame is at the root of most mm -hmm. men's violence, that men feeling shamed and then trying to reclaim mm -hmm. their, their honor in a sense 
through the use of uh, redemptive violence is at the heart of so much of the violence we see. So James Gilligan, um, I would say that that would be one. Um, I don't want to talk about it by Terry Real. Um, it's 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 about men's depression, but it's about much more than that. It's about men's relational health um, and, and broadly understood. Um, although that's a little more focused on um, white men, um, it, it, you know, and because they think it's important to be um, uh, intersectional in the way that we think yeah. about men and masculinities. A third one would be a film. It's a documentary film called Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes mm. by my friend and colleague Byron Hurt. And it's a brilliant examination of, of black masculinity in hip hop uh culture and rap music in particular from a hip-hop head byron is a it's a loving critique of rap music the hyper masculinity mm. and homophobia and heterosexism um but from a loving critique framework because byron is a, an african-american man from new york who loves hip-hop but it's brilliant in a way it makes you think or helps you to think about how media culture and popular music and other forms help to normalize certain kinds of dysfunctional and abusive behaviors and it doesn't have to be this way mm. and so that so i would say those three would be a good start oh one last one dying to be men by will courtney that's four i'm sorry oh, good i didn't it's... will courtney is one of the one of the sort of the pioneers of men's health movement and dying to be men it's not it's not an easy read it's a it's a compendium of of research and you know about suicide and emotional health and physical health and heart disease and all kinds of things as it relates to men's gender mm. in other words you know masculinity or masculinities and will courtney um is you know is, is a brilliant and important figure dying to be men mm. so thanks for the yeah. question Great. and the final question we ask everybody we should ask you because you're the expert um what does it mean to be man enough to be jackson katz i'm oh, sorry you have to answer that question <laughs> <laughs> yeah. synonyms um what does it mean to be man enough I mean, I think other people might have said this already, so I, I'm sorry if I'm not being original. It's it's really about being a good person. It's not really about being a good man. Mm. It's I think I think the aspirations that we should all have is to be, is to be compassionate, to be concerned with with the well-being of others. To that you know, looking just not just our immediate self-interest, but our collective self-interest as human beings. It's being um, you know um, graceful in the face of you know, disappointment. It's about, these are human qualities. These aren't manly or womanly mm. qualities. I think all the qualities that I aspire to or that I aspire to for the people that I, that I care about, um, especially men and young men, um, are human qualities and not manly qualities. So I would say, what does it mean to be a good person enough mm. and, and, and a good member of society in the late, you know, the late, well, in the early 21st century within a, in a human family with enormous problems mm you know, and, and historical problems um, from, you know, from violence to, you know, racial and, and, and income inequality to climate change and climate crisis. So what does it mean to be a good person is really the, is the question. And to the extent that we can decouple those human qualities from these narrow gender categories, we'll be making forward progress for our, uh, for our species and it will improve our own personal relationships and lives. Mm, thank you. Well, well, Jackson, you definitely are human enough. <laughs> so appreciate you coming on, thank man. Yes, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, likewise, likewise. And we'll talk to you soon. We will be right back. This is Mana.
Hello, and welcome back to Man Enough. Damn. That was great. I love how Jamie had a big aha progression moment. This interview kind of changed something. It didn't for change you. my opinion about anything. Yeah. I've always been in this position of pro choice. It has changed the way that I will talk about it and uh -huh. deal with it without having to defend or think that I have to then add this piece because I say this piece. Mm -hmm. As if saying this piece negates this. Yes. It was really eye opening for me. I can just simply say pro choice. Get the hell out of the way. 100% support women. Absolutely, period. And leave it at that. Mm -hmm. hmm. It doesn't. Why do I think that it? It's like I'm pro-choice to choose religion, right? Believe in God or not. I don't sit there. Of course, everyone should have a choice. Mm -hmm. I don't follow it with, but you should believe in God. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I just say, like, of course, nobody should ever tell someone that they should believe in this. And that, that doesn't have, allow people to have their choices. Yeah. So why do I do that with this? Yeah. Well, Why I think it's I the narrative. To... I think it's the narrative that's pushed, right? When you talked about, like, well, you're a baby killer. It's like, yeah. am I? Like, because I, it's like, all I'm saying is that other people have a right, you know, that the state shouldn't make that decision for you. I, and then you're, I mean, it's a, it's as Jackson uh, put it, it's a very simple minded, I mean, not just simple minded, it's like fa a false approach to this narrative. And we accept that framing because it's put upon us, I think, on a minority of people, yeah. minority of people who want these laws to exist. Majority of people don't. Um, but we accept that framing and so it seems like you were able to free yourself from that framing I and agree. have your own approach to this issue without someone else yeah determining how you feel because honestly liz i have you. not posted something like on, on i mean i don't post so much on social anyways but when i do post i don't ever post about this because of this i think a lot of people have that this same, intersection of yeah. being so yeah and part of it's like of course i'm pro-choice i feel free and, and and liberated to just post I could post and wear a shirt that says pro-choice because it doesn't negate the other. Yeah, it doesn't great. have to mean that. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's awesome. And it is it is tricky. I mean, it's it's something I've been struggling with is, you know, as you know, I recently, I don't know, who knows when this is going to come out, but posted about it. And it also hurts when people call you a baby killer. I'm not going to lie. There's a part of you that's just like, what the? No, I'm not. But like, it hurts that this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That we're like, we're we're hurting. We're all hurting so much that we're like, putting these statements and beliefs on each other mm -hmm. and that's not what it's about i just want everyone to heal i just want everyone to heal so much but we can't heal without doing the work and doing the work means it'll be painful yeah and it's more painful for women who are forced to bear children um and who My are this, uh put into poverty as a result of it right and again you know one in three women will have an abortion so every room you've probably been in there's been a woman who's had an abortion so of course um yeah i think it's again it's important to remember those uh statistics there's so much so much that he offered that um you know we'll have to listen back to it yeah and reflect on yeah. a lot of the stuff when he talked about just this idea of like we want to actually, we kind of do it here. We're, we're all about calling in versus calling out. Uh -huh. And when him saying something like, if you come to, how did he put it? Trying to bridge this gap. If you come with someone and call them names or say you're this or you say you're that or this or this or this, immediately you lose them. Yeah. 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 You are a sexist. Invite you're rather a racist. Than indict. Yeah. You're whatever these are because they don't even see themselves. We don't see ourselves as that, that, and that. So then we disconnect. That was really good, I think, because there are so many people, wonderful people that would care if they could get past that language. Yeah. Right, if they don't see themselves as. I do that with, did that with a 12-step program, same thing. I'm, I'm not that, don't call me that. I don't identify with this, this, and yeah. this, and this. As soon as you put that away and go, 
okay, but I see something else. Then you're willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. Yeah. We got to have him back. Absolutely. Great Immediately. conversation. Immediately. Yeah. I think we have him back. I think he should be a standing comeback. Standing comeback? Standing comeback. Hey, I'll go to I'll go to school with Jackson any day of the week. Uh, I'm like- sorry you got to deal with this shit all the time, Liz. Thanks. Fucking sucks that we're still dealing with this. That's yeah. so two plus two to me, and, and I don't. Well, now that it is, you're gonna be posting about it all the time, and you guys are gonna be taking a stand on this. It's gonna help create change. If you like the conversation, if you like learning with us in real time. Where, Jamie, can they find us? You know, you can find us at all spots. You can find us on Spotify. The cool spots. You can go to Apple, um, iTunes. You can go to YouTube. You can go to uh, Stitcher. You can go to where are the other spots? All, all the cool spots it. that you yeah. find all your, your great things. And um, type in manenough.com slash podcast. You can find us there as well. Ooh, you've done this before. Uh, we will see you next time. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I am... God, you know, right then I wanted to say Jackson Cats, but then in the midst of it, I thought that was sacrilegious, but I wanted to like embody just what I got from him. But I'm Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Man Enough. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfarer Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Malhotra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Kerry Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.